Fired Up show starts right now. And welcome everybody. Greetings. Welcome to the Fired Up podcast right here on WJMS Media. And I am Steve. I'm your host. And uh, as always, we're going to get into the political realm here in the United States. Um, Let's kick it off with kind of a follow-up to a, uh, a post I made uh, last year, uh, shortly after the Supreme Court ruled uh, in Dobbs that overturned Roe versus Wade. Uh, I made mention of the fact that uh, there would likely be uh, more shoes that would drop as a result of the, the decision that the Supreme Court made. And what we've seen in the time since then has been a concerted effort by uh, red states uh, in this country to further restrict uh, the right of women to access uh, medical care, particularly uh, reproductive medical care. And uh, this past week, uh, the one of the other shoes uh, did in fact drop. Uh, I heard a report Uh, that came from Rachel Maddow at MSNBC, uh, one of the people that is in the circle of media that I listen to uh, on a regular basis. And uh, she reported that a letter signed by 19 Republican state attorneys, uh, I'm sorry, 19 Republican state attorneys general, uh, which was uh, in response to a proposed HHS rule that would uh, protect the privacy of residents of their states seeking reproductive health care in other states with greater reproductive freedom and you know quite possibly threaten the ability uh, of Republicans to target Americans seeking out-of-state trans health care as well. So what this means is that if you are in a state where uh, abortion uh, has been banned or you know severely restricted or you know in, in other terms made increasingly difficult uh, to get uh, either abortion care, uh, trans uh, gender care, uh, or or similar, uh, that the state government where you live can trace and track you to where you went to get these services and then reach out to that agency in another state and request uh, your medical records of that treatment uh, in order for them to uh, hand over to law enforcement to prosecute you based on the uh, laws of your home state. So, you know, the the this is extremely troubling number one because it is a case where uh, one state government is reaching into another state to obtain uh, your personal medical history uh, if you travel to another state for a a medical procedure that is prescribed uh, in your home state Uh, so it, it 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 brought me back to what I mentioned after the uh, Dobbs decision last year when I said uh, if, if you believe that this decision 
was intended to, you know, target uh, liberals or, you know, Democrats or, or other non-Republican uh, people uh, and included in that group uh, for people who are white or, or women in this case who are white uh, seeking these services that the uh, government uh, or the, the Republican governments in your states would be coming for you as well. Uh, as with many of the laws that we have seen come out of both the uh, uber-conservative Supreme Court and the Republican-controlled legislatures around the country, uh, this is not a, uh, a law or a practice that is intended solely to target uh, minority uh, individuals in those states. This law will impact uh, you know, poor people in general. Uh, it will impact people in rural areas who already have limited access to uh, reproductive health care and you know, will, will serve as you know, a, another step on the path of infringing on, on our rights as citizens in this country. So you know, while uh, upset that uh, this uh, proposal uh, is being worked out and further upset by the fact that there are 19 states that signed on to this uh, letter uh, requesting that access to these private medical records be granted to state officials uh, is, you know, troubling and concerning, um, but truthfully not surprised given where the conservative elements in this country uh, have been pushing us to go. So we will, uh, of course, keep track on the progress on this. If you want to hear more, uh, you can go to Rachel Maddow's blog. Uh, it is uh, msnbc.com uh, slash Maddow blog. That's M-A-D-D-O-W-B-L-O-G. And the article is there. It has a, uh, a date stamp of July 18th, 2023. Uh, check that out. Give it a listen. And then go and you know check your broader sources, as we always say. Uh, but this is something that uh, we should be concerned about because, as I said last year, you know, there are a lot of things that we consider to be rights that uh, the Supreme Court and now state legislatures are attacking and seeking to undermine, undercut, or eliminate altogether. So we will keep you posted on it, but just wanted to give you a heads up on that. In another uh, news story that I uh, just wanted to touch base on, uh, down in Texas, uh, Governor Greg Abbott uh, installed or, or had installed a barrier across the Rio Grande uh, in, in several particular sections uh, of consisting of uh, floating buoys uh, wrapped with razor wire. Uh, at, to serve as a deterrent for immigrants crossing the river. Uh, one of these uh, in uh, a location called Eagle Pass, um, which is a section of the border that has the second highest number of migrant crossings uh, this fiscal year, uh, has come under fire from the Department of Justice uh, 
saying that the barriers are unlawful pursuant to Section 10 of the Rivers and Harbors Act. Uh, and, you know, according to a report uh, that came out from Axios, according to a uh, July 3rd email uh, that was obtained by Hearst Newspapers, uh, which was sent by a Department of Public Safety trooper uh, in uh, Texas to their superior, uh, this email detailed uh, some previously unreported incidents uh, that occurred in and around the Eagle Pass section of the Rio Grande River. Uh, in the email, the trooper said that a pregnant woman having a miscarriage was caught in the wire in June. Uh, it also said a four-year-old girl passed out from the heat exhaustion as she attempted to pass the barrier and was pushed back uh, across the border by Texas National Guard soldiers. Uh, it also reported that a teenage boy broke his leg trying to get around the barbed wire and had to be carried uh, across the river by his father. And he also noted uh, in, in the email that the wire has increased the number of drownings by forcing immigrants into deeper parts of the water. So, you know, here we have uh, an action taken by uh, Texas Governor Abbott that, uh, as it says in the article, poses a risk to navigation as well as public safety in the Rio Grande River, and it presents humanitarian concerns. So the DOJ is seeking appropriate legal remedies uh, and you know, basically is condemning uh, this practice as uh, something that should not be done. Governor Abbott responded uh, to the email on Twitter uh, citing that Texas has the, quote, sovereign authority, close quote, to defend the border under the U.S. Constitution and the Texas Constitution. Uh, he further stated that Texas is stepping up to address this crisis. Uh, we will continue to deploy every strategy to protect Texans and Americans and the migrants risking their lives. So, you know, they are they are citing a a threat to you know, Texas and America by these migrants uh, crossing the river. And their response to it was to basically put up a barbed wire barrier uh, across uh, several sections of the Rio Grande River, uh, which, you know, would hopefully or their hope is that it would serve as a, a further deterrent from migrants crossing the river. And of course, as it says in the article, what it is is forcing migrants to seek other places uh, in the river where they can cross that are not uh, uh, guarded by these barbed wire barriers. And, you know, more migrants are drowning in the deeper waters and the faster currents. And basically it is making uh, the situation worse uh, somewhat rather than better. So we'll keep up with what happens with the DOJ's uh, legal action and the response from the state of Texas. If you've been following um, the political scene, either you know, through sources that uh, you regularly use or you know, even through this podcast, uh, you will notice that there has been a dramatic uh, uptick in the level of uh, audacity that is being shown, uh, particularly by you know conservative Republicans, 
in terms of ignoring the popular will of the people and you know doing what they think or more accurately what their um, their funders and the lobbyists think uh, is the policy that they should go uh, we've we've talked about this on this show numerous times about how issues that have uh, overwhelming and broad uh, you know cross political boundary support uh, with American voters uh, have you know essentially been ignored by the Republican Party in you know pursuing what you know they believe their agenda ought to be rather than what the people that elected them and put them in office. Uh, believe their agenda should be. Now, it's not just Republicans that are creating this um, this scenario or this crisis. Um, Democrats are, by and large, uh, complicit in it simply by the fact that they are not pushing back uh, on the the messaging that is coming out from the Republican Party. Uh, in in any concerted manner. Now, I will say that the uh, recent ad from the Biden political campaign that uh, took uh, excerpts from a speech given by Republican House member Marjorie Taylor Greene that essentially uh, listed uh, some of Biden's accomplishments uh, in her attempt uh, at an attack uh, statement uh, is is one recent example of where the messaging from the Democrat side uh, took on what uh, could be considered the more necessary aggressive tone that much of their messaging needs to take. And, you know, it, it has been, you know, too long uh, that there has been, you know, no real um stinging response by the Democrats to the the statements coming out of the Republican Party. Uh, so hopefully, uh, judging uh, from the success of this latest ad, uh, we will see Democrats, you know, especially at the national level, but essentially at every level, uh, step up even more and take on their Republican opponents uh, on the truth, on the facts and make sure that they are holding them accountable uh, to what is the reality here in America rather than what the Republican fantasy seems to believe it is. So, you know, where does that, where does that lead? Uh, what happens when, you know, the, the thought that simply because we can do this, uh, the Republicans feel empowered to uh, do pretty much whatever they want to do, Uh, We can look at uh, a news article that came out of Alabama this week uh, where uh, the the legislature of the state of Alabama defied the uh, Supreme Court directive that they needed to construct uh, two uh, majority black districts to effectively represent the, the black and minority population of the state of Alabama. Let me give you a little background. So Alabama uh, presently has about 25% uh, black voters. The, uh, of the seven congressional districts in the state of Alabama, 
uh, as constructed under the prior map, which was heavily gerrymandered. And we've talked about gerrymandering before, folks. Um, there was only one uh, black majority district, uh, District 7, uh, that existed in the state. So the state, uh, the, the Democratic Party and, and others took a case to the state Supreme Court to overturn the uh, voting map and have uh, more than one. Uh, they, were, they were going for two districts uh, in the state to be a majority black representation. And this challenge went all the way up to the United States Supreme Court where the Supreme Court ruled that Alabama had to create at least two majority black districts uh, out, of, out of their state. And the, the heavily Republican or, or Republican-controlled legislature basically ignored that ruling. Uh, they did redraw the map. Uh, they did uh, increase uh, the, the uh, population percentage of Alabama's District 2, uh, but that only increased the black voting uh, level to 39.9%. So now we had uh, one district uh, which was uh, a little bit over 50% and one district which was a, a little bit under 40%, which wasn't what the state, the federal Supreme Court had called for. So, you know, it, it is, again, another example of uh, Republican elected officials uh, doing to a large extent whatever they wanted to do because they could do it uh, rather than obeying uh, what was a, a legal decision handed down from the, the federal Supreme Court. Um, and you know, again, you know, it, it is just part and parcel of what we've seen in uh, Republican politics uh, in many states, um, not just Alabama, but Louisiana, Florida, Texas, uh, Arkansas, uh, all, all across uh, the, the red states in this country, uh, Republicans are utilizing their majorities, and in some cases their supermajorities, in these, these houses of state legislature uh, basically to carry out uh, their agenda with no consideration for what uh, the people of their state uh, Republican, Democrat, and otherwise are uh, demanding that they do. So, you know, it, it is something that we've talked about. It is something that we as the electorate uh, must address uh, in, in our individual states. Um, and, you know, it, it is a, a critical need that must get fixed. Uh, we've talked about this on, on several shows. Uh, and, you know, understand that making the kind of substantive changes that would allow for, uh, you know, a, a more equitable representation of the state electorates is not something that is going to be solved in the 2024 election cycle. It is something that is going to take uh, several election cycles, both uh, national and midterm in order to correct at the state level, which will then lead to corrections at the federal level as well. 
So if if you need more um, background on that, I urge you to go to uh, your podcast uh, source of choice or search uh, in your search engine of choice for uh, Fired Up Podcast, uh, WJMS Media, and you will see you know our previous shows listed. Uh, take a listen and you know see what it is that we're talking about here on Fired Up because we have been discussing this uh, consistently over over the the many episodes that we've done. So uh, getting back to this Alabama decision, uh, it is clear that um, the conservative majority court which had upheld a lower court ruling that the current map violated the Voting Rights Act uh, because it offered black voters less opportunity than other Alabamians to elect candidates of their choice to Congress, which is what the Voting Rights Act uh, is intended to do. Uh, in, in response, however, Alabama Governor Kay Ivey made it clear that she had no intention of um, complying with the order. Uh, she said in a tweet that the legislature, quote, knows our state, our people, and our districts better than the federal courts or activist groups, and I am pleased that they answered the call, remain focused, and produce new districts ahead of the court deadline. Now, this is not likely uh, to continue without further legal challenges. Um, and, you know, however, um, there was, you know, a, as according to one state rep uh, said, there was never any intent in this building to comply with their court order. So, you know, it, it, it's clear that, you know, Republicans in particular um, are, you know, thumbing their nose at, you know, the authority at, from the federal level. Uh, simply because by force of their numbers, they believe that they can do whatever it is that they want. So uh, for you in Alabama, uh, study up on the issue, find out about where your legislature stands on other issues that are important to you and make sure that in every upcoming election at every level that you are registered and that you are exercising your vote uh, to make sure that your opinion weighs in on these these legislators. If they are not doing what you elected them there to do, and it doesn't matter if you're a Republican or a Democrat, uh, it is on you to exercise your vote and uh, make a change. So we'll we'll keep tabs on this like like uh, the other stories, and we'll let you know what develops from this. So the last item uh, in, in the first half of the show this week, uh, actually, I heard this while I was uh, driving for work because um, my job allows me a lot of windshield time. So I get to listen to a lot of uh, different news uh, sources uh, as I'm driving. And I heard this one and it, it shocked me to my core. Uh, it was an excerpt from uh, Arizona Republican Representative, uh, House of Representative uh, Eli Crane, uh, who made a comment during discussion of an amendment uh, 
that he proposed. Uh, and uh, you know, now by way of background, Crane's a member of the uh, far right House Freedom Caucus. Uh, his amendment would eliminate consideration of minority status in recruitment and retention processes in the U.S. military. Okay, uh, fair point for argument, but in his in his comments, and particularly in his response to another uh, U.S. representative, uh, Joyce Beatty of Ohio, uh, who is happens to be a black woman, she voiced her opposition to removing. Uh, these considerations from military recruitment and retention. Uh, and uh, based on you know, her comments of opposition, Representative Crane responded to her and made uh, the comment where he referred to uh, black people as colored people. And you know, if many of you are probably not old enough to recall that uh, the term colored people was a, a, a term used to describe black people that uh, kind of fell out of favor in the, the late 60s and early 70s um, because, you know, basically black people, myself included, we found it offensive. Um, so, you know, in, and she, uh, that is Representative Crane, uh, was responding to uh, the statement where, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Representative Beatty was responding to a statement by Representative Crane, uh, which would ban the consideration, um, you know, of of these groups in in the military's personnel policies, uh, and she took great offense to it, and. Um, made the motion that the phrase be stricken from the congressional record, which it ultimately was. Uh, but the, the idea that in 2023, uh, a U.S. congressional representative could stand in the well of the House and make such a statement uh, just goes to what I was talking about a few minutes ago, in this, you know, sort of unspoken but understood notion by uh, certain elements of the Republican Party, not all Republicans, but some of these hardcore right wing Republicans believe they can say whatever they damn well please uh, because, you know, we're in control. We have the House uh, and, and we say this and we do this because we can say this and do this. Um, and kudos to Representative Beatty for pushing back forcibly on this and expressing her outrage uh, at his statement and the, the base level insensitivity that it shows. But it, you know, it's case in point, you know, and, and there are, are many examples of things that you know, the, the Republican Party uh, has said and has done uh, in, you know, the, the last, you know, two decades or so, um, you know, I, there, there, are, there are tons, you know, and, and we, could, we could do a whole hour just on, 
on the castigations of uh, Democrats and uh, liberals and progressives and minorities by the Republican Party uh, over the last, you know, 20, 25, 30 years, um, you know, and, and much of which we've covered in this show, we've referenced in this show. You can go back and listen to our archive histories and, uh, and, and find out for yourself. But, you know, I will add my voice to the chorus of someone who was extremely shocked that, again, in this day and age, in you know, July of 2023, that a uh, U.S. elected official would make such a statement on the public record in the House of Representatives uh, just uh, was you know, offensive in the extreme, insensitive in the extreme, and really, again, just showed this, you know, I don't have to listen, I can do what I want to do attitude that seems to pervade the Republican Party. So, again, kudos to uh, Representative Joyce Beatty of Ohio uh, for calling him on it and uh, taking the action of getting that phrase stricken from the congressional record. All right, so when we come back after the break, we're going to talk, we're going to shift gears and talk about uh, some things that are coming out of the national presidential campaign, uh, in particular, uh, some elements that have been brought to light in terms of uh, what the Republican strategy will be for the next president should they um, take the House, whether it is Donald Trump or not. So we will do that when we come back. You're listening to the Fired Up Podcast right here on WJMS Media, and we'll be right back. I was going to get my voter ID card because they said you had to have it in order to be able to vote. When I got there, I approached the gentleman at the counter and told him what I wanted. I showed him my veteran's card. He said that was no good. He said, you had to have a state-issued ID card in order to be able to vote. Seniors, women, people of color, young adults, those with low incomes, people with disabilities. Every citizen needs to review your documentation now to make sure you can vote in November. Please check with your local county election board to make sure the name on your photo ID closely matches the name you used when you registered to vote. Please contact us at 866-OUR-VOTE or 866-687-8683. And welcome back. Welcome back. Uh, We are definitely in the uh, campaign and election uh, cycle as we head toward the November 2024 national election. So the preceding PSA was definitely appropriate. Uh, please make sure that your uh, credentials to vote are uh, up to date, current, and um, that you have the ID that you need in order to cast your ballot. I realize it's still many months out, but bear in mind, as we've talked about on this show many times, uh, there are forces out there that are looking to actively purge uh, voters, particularly voters uh, in uh, areas that are controlled by uh, the Republicans, uh, 
that uh, they are looking to purge uh, voters that would be most likely to vote against Republican tickets in those states. But it doesn't matter if you're in a blue state as well. Uh, check on your voter registration status and keep checking on it. Uh, and do it monthly or do it you know, every other month just to make sure that you remain current on the voting rolls in your community. It's vitally important that every voice be heard and every vote be counted. And we will obviously be talking more about uh, voting and vote counting as we progress toward the national election. Um, so in, in picking up after what we were talking about in the first segment, um, the, the next story I wanted to talk about, uh, again, I, I heard about this uh, while driving and listening to the radio. And uh, essentially, uh, it is uh, something that, uh, again, sort of snapped my head back with the premise of the question. So uh, there is an opinion piece that discusses it in the Tampa Bay Times. This came out on Ju uh, July 21st. Uh, the title says, Florida History Lesson, Slavery as an Unpaid Internship. And, and again, it's an editorial opinion in the Tampa Bay Times. Uh, it leads off with the following question. Should American slavery be considered an unpaid internship of sorts? Now, uh, for, for many of you, if not all of you, who work in you know, the, the private sector you know, employment, we are familiar with the concept of an intern. Uh, it is typically, uh, although it's typically, you know, a, a student or a young person, uh, not necessarily so, but uh, internships are typically uh, unpaid. Uh, they are, you know, people who are working in a, an environment or in a, in a profession or a trade in order to gain uh, skills that they need uh, to become a paid employee. Uh, it is oftentimes uh, on a temporary basis. Uh, it, it might be, you know, three months, six months. It might be a year. Uh, some professions uh, have internships that start out as unpaid and you can graduate to a paid internship. Uh, so I, I preface all of that because this past week, uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed uh, a bill into law uh, that set the uh, Florida uh, education standard uh, in, into law. And particularly the guidelines uh, of this uh, included African-American uh, history strand. Uh, and these are the guidelines that teachers uh, will follow uh, when you know, teaching courses in the coming academic year. So, as I said, the, the opinion piece starts off with the question, should uh, American slavery be considered an unpaid internship of sorts? Uh, so, what they were talking about, and, you know, they clearly say this is what was put out there, but, you know, it, they wish that, you know, they were kidding with their question, um, the guidelines of the new, quote, African-American history strand say that classroom instruction should include, and I quote, how slaves develop skills, which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit. 
let that sink in um, now that's a very controversial statement uh, the guidelines according to the article also say that teachers lessons should quote examine the various duties and trades performed by slaves such as agricultural work painting carpentry tailoring domestic service blacksmithing and transportation okay and you know the article goes on and says okay some slaves did in fact perform trades and laid and learned skills but these guidelines de-emphasize the back-breaking, life-shortening field work on the cotton, rice, and sugarcane plantations as, quote, agricultural work, uh, just one of many trades. In all cases, this was forced labor required of black people who were enslaved. Uh, and that concept should never be downplayed. So, you know, in... in agreeing with what they're saying here there is a difference between you know what you would see in a modern day intern who fills out an application comes in goes through an evaluation process uh, gets brought on board to work in this position uh, as an unpaid intern uh, for a specified period of time contrast that to what went on during the the period of uh, enslavement of African people in this country where you were born you were uh, as, as soon as you were old enough to perform a task you were placed into that task uh, yes it was unpaid but it was also in many cases not necessarily a trade of your choosing but one that you were thrown into perhaps because it was the trade that your uh, your parents worked in or it was a trade for which um, the uh, the the masters thought that you would be best suited based on some uh, physical attribute you know strength height endurance or so forth uh, or it was you know a trade that uh, they just needed to fill a vacancy in. But either way, um, the, the lesson plan that was signed now uh, requires teachers to teach this uh, so-called internship as you know, a, a beneficial uh, lesson learning uh, uh, opportunity that would allow slaves to uh, have uh, things or, or skills that which could in some senses uh, enrich them, pay them money. So while the effort of uh, trying to humanize uh, slaves and showing you know, school children that enslaved people had inner lives is important, but teaching students that enslaved people could acquire skills doesn't really do that or help students explore anything about their hopes, their dreams, or their fears. Uh, the article goes on to say, in fact, teaching that these skills could sometimes be, quote, applied for their personal benefit, close quote, rather misses the point. It runs the risk of making slavery seem somehow more benign than it was. So, you know, and, and, while, you know, there were slaves who were skilled artisans uh, or, you know, who could earn wages 
and buy a few things of their own. But the important point to understand is they never owned their own bodies. They belonged to the slave master. Um, the article cites a couple of examples. Uh, one, an iron worker in Virginia who became so skilled uh, that he earned money um, you know, because he exceeded the production quota uh, that was required of him by his owner. Uh, he was able to earn money and use that to buy his wife, um, you know, various items, gloves, a shawl, handkerchief, and so forth. Um, you know, and, you know, it, it, it goes on to talk about other uh, slaves, including Frederick Douglass, um, who spent 20 years as a slave and nine years a fugitive until some English friends raised $711.66 to buy his freedom in 1845 after he was already a famous orator, uh, author, and abolitionist. You know, so it even in the cases where uh, the skill could be a, quote, ticket, close quote, uh, to better things, uh, keep in mind that it was still during the era of enslavement in this country. And none of that would occur without the uh, expressed blessing or contribution or you know, trailblazing by a, a white slave master or some other uh, individuals uh, on behalf of that enslaved person. So and, and then the article doesn't talk about and my reading of the outline of the uh, education plan also doesn't talk about what happens and what transpires with those, quote, trained uh, interns, uh, you know, from enslavement uh, once slavery ended. Well, we saw what happened with that. Uh, Reconstruction came around. Uh, there were, uh, you know, former enslaved people who started farms, who started businesses. Uh, there were enclaves of uh, business and economic growth in, in several states, the most famous of which was in Tulsa. But there were also several uh, uh, clusters of uh, black businesses in Florida that as they became more and more successful, they became more and more of a target by the, the former enslavers, uh, ultimately leading to the destruction of the uh, Black Wall Street, so-called, in Tulsa, uh, and also of the enclave in Florida. So even if the, the individuals learned the skills they needed in order to generate an economic benefit for themselves, their ability to do so was still severely restricted by laws put in place post-emancipation proclamation designed to restrict uh, their movement, their growth, their advancement. The period of Reconstruction after the Civil War uh, was ended on a bargain struck between uh, the North and the South uh, to remove Northern troops from occupation in uh, the southern territories that had been liberated uh, during the Civil War uh, in return for uh, granting some level of, uh, quote, freedom to formerly enslaved people uh, in those territories. 
Now, what happened, you know, immediately following the end of Reconstruction uh, began the the Jim Crow uh, period of laws and and segregation uh, and, you know, all sorts of other uh, restricting elements that stayed just inside the lines of, you know, the the laws designated in the Constitution and and other documents, but still served to uh, to restrict and constrict what um, formerly enslaved people in the South and other areas could essentially do with their lives. So the notion that uh, slavery gave you know, these people, uh, these formerly enslaved people, uh, skills that they could use for their own economic development uh, really was um, kind of window dressing, shall we say. Uh, According to the article, uh, the real truth and what should be emphasized is that slavery was an abomination that was uh, beyond redemption, that people built their riches on the backs of people they literally owned. And once that ownership was taken away, uh, it was, you know, through conscious effort of, you know, former owners that the the advancement and development of the formerly enslaved uh, people in their territories uh, would be restricted by whatever means uh, could be brought to bear. So, you know, we have a situation where uh, while the idea that there is some level of African American history being taught, uh, much like what we see in, in history uh, all across this country, it is uh, still a restricted, redacted, um, edited, uh, or to put it another way, a whitewashed version of what the actual facts of American history uh, from slavery through the Civil War and in the post-Civil War period up to today uh, was and continues to be. Uh, It is still a narrative that is being told by one side and uh, as they ignore uh, relevant and important contributions of others, you know, to the history of this country. And it it is also something that we need to be vigilant about and uh, make sure that we are doing everything we can so that, you know, the proper facts are being told in their proper fashion. Uh, So it is possible that this new... um, African-American history strand will be the subject of some type of legal action. Uh, I have not seen any indication of anything so far, but we will keep an eye on it for you. All right. So moving from there, uh, but staying at the national level, now brings us to a discussion of the front runner on the Republican side of the uh, political process toward uh, the presidential election. Uh, in November of 2024. Um, And there was a story that came out from the New York Times. Uh, They published an article on uh, last Monday uh, that found that uh, Donald Trump and those in his inner orbit are uh, actively buzzing with ways that he could use what's called a radical interpretation of something known as unitary executive theory 
to amass unprecedented power as president. The, the unitary executive theory contests that the president holds total control of the executive branch. Uh, it rejects constraints on presidential power, such as the Justice Department independence and congressional regulations on executive branch agencies. So what's going on here with this is that there are a group of people, including uh, elements from the Heritage Foundation and, and other uh, right-wing ultra-conservative groups that are saying that uh, what is needed is for uh, the presidency of the United States to become what some might define as an imperial presidency uh, and that you know the the idea that uh, agencies of the government in the executive branch have some level of, of independent uh, operating authority uh, would be uh, eliminated if not severely, severely restricted. It, it's no secret that Donald Trump is a huge fan of authoritarian leadership, uh, people such as uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, Erdogan of, of Turkey, uh, Kim Jong-un of North Korea, etc., uh, Xi Jinping of China. And, you know, he has, through his first term, he was trying to find methods to make the American presidency more authoritarian. Well, now in the, inter in the interregnum between his first term and what he hopes uh, will be a second term starting in, in 2025 uh, is that uh, the, the idea that this unitary executive theory can be used to, you know, to consolidate uh, much power to the office of the presidency. Uh, in fact, giving him uh, control and almost daily say so over such uh, such government agencies as the State Department, the Defense Department, intelligence agencies. So what he's looking at and what proposals are being worked on. Uh, is his intent to purge officials from, as I said, the State Department, from the Defense Department, and intelligence agencies that he thinks represents the, quote, deep state cabal, close quote. Uh, and it's not something that he's necessarily working on in secret. Uh, he spoke openly about this uh, on, you know, the campaign trail and on speeches since leaving, you know, office as president um, about, you know, ending such things as the the norm of an independent justice department, and instead using that department to investigate his political opponents. Um, according to the article, he would seek to bring agencies like the Federal Trade Commission directly under presidential control. He, and, and what that would, might give him authority to do would be to impound funds, to refuse to spend money allocated by Congress on policymaking he personally disfavors. Uh, one of the things was noted in the article that uh, Congress banned this practice during Richard Nixon's administration. Nixon was, was known and famous for pulling funds from his political enemies. And Trump would revise and strengthen rule changes 
to make it easier to fire members of the nonpartisan, expert-focused civil service perceived as disloyal. So if you are a civil service uh, worker and you have publicly disagree with the president, you would lose your job. Uh, and you know many of these measures, according to the article, uh, will obviously be met by fierce legal challenges, but the unmistakable goal is, according to how the New York Times put it, to alter the balance of power by increasing the president's authority over every part of the federal government that now operates either by law or tradition with any measure of independence from political interference by the White House. So, you know, basically, as I said, he's, you know, taking a page from uh, Erdogan's uh, playbook in Turkey that, you know, he consolidated his power, eliminated his political enemies, and uh, basically removed anybody in government or in business who was uh, openly perceived as being against him, thus solidifying an uh, autocratic rule and el eliminating uh, much, if not all, of what uh, America describes as democracy in this country. Um, while you know, th this is, you know, something that could easily be perceived as, you know, a, a fantasy or a Republican pipe dream. It is nonetheless, given the divided nature of our politics right now, uh, something that could potentially be a real problem and something that we need to, uh, to keep uh, aware of and to make sure that we are uh, addressing it. Uh, you know, in, in another part of the article, uh, it says, and I'll, I'll read it directly, um, the, the subtitle is, Trump doubles down on anti-democratic rhetoric in new speech, calling 2024, quote, our final battle. Uh, and, you know, this is uh, what that segment says. Things could be different if Trump won another term. His team and his think tank allies are exerting a ton of effort to make the storming of the White House a lot more systematic and thinking through using hiring and rule changes to create a more pliant set of officials and policymakers in the executive branch. One transition uh, group called Project 2025 has a $22 million budget and has already drawn up personnel lists and transition plans, uh, as reported by the Times. The article goes on to state how Trump and his inner circle will be more aware of the importance of swift strategic hiring and the points of friction with the bureaucracy that they felt held them back last time. And uh, concludes with, while Trump was probably not held back by shame in his first term, he did back off some of his more extreme measures when he felt the possibility of mass resignations made it politically difficult to pursue something. Now that he's openly calling for the idea of purges and likely has even less regard for the political establishment, he could be more emboldened to act more rashly in the future. And that last piece was a reference to uh, an action that 
President, former President Trump considered uh, right near the end of his first term uh, where uh, he was looking at uh, replacing his uh, attorney general with uh, 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 one of the deputies, uh, Jack Clark, uh, until he was told by uh, his, his senior advisors that if he did that, uh, the entire bulk of uh, federal uh, prosecutors and, and uh, attorneys would resign en masse. And so he realized that if he appointed that man, it would, it would absolutely cripple the Justice Department, br- grind it to a halt, and really raise uh, eyebrows and, and indications of what kind of, of craziness he was, was trying to do. And his inner circle was also reminding him of the last days of the Nixon administration, where what forced Nixon to resign was the fact that uh, the the House and the Senate were firmly against what he had done, and he realized that the game was over. So now, if he's looking at purging what he considers or or what he and his you know think tank and and other allies consider to be uh, disloyal people in the federal government. Uh, he will be more free and more able to do these kind of maneuvers, essentially converting uh, our government into an autocracy. Uh, you know, and you know, it, it it's the sky's the limit if that comes to pass. So <clears throat> we will um, keep you posted, um, and we'll see how this progresses. Uh, but you know, this is is something that should give both. Republicans and Democrats some pause and something I've mentioned before and something that needs to be mentioned again as we talk about this is that realize uh, this is not about owning the libs this is not about uh, attacking you know blue state Democrats or you know people who are uh, progressive or independent or any of that this is about amassing pure political power to, to one or a few key individuals in this country uh, and basically stepping outside of the boundaries of the, the laws laid down in our Constitution and legal documents and you know, running this country as they see fit. Uh, and you know, heaven help the rest of us if we happen to disagree with the you know, administration or with the leadership uh, you know of it and one last point that I'll leave you with on this as we uh, wrap up the show uh, we talk about um, Donald Trump but there are other people in the wings who uh, are as bad if not worse than Donald Trump and you know one of them is Ron DeSantis who like Trump has a lot of the same characteristics but unlike Trump, is much more um, politically savvy and doesn't have the political baggage that uh, Donald Trump has hanging around his neck. So, you know, our, our, vigilant, our vigilance rather is required. We need to stay on top of the games being played. You know, as I said earlier, we need to make sure that we are and remain registered to vote right up until the last minute, 
we need to make sure that our voting credentials are in fact correct. We also need to make sure that we are communicating with our elected officials, that we let them know that yes, we are watching you. Yes, there are things that you are doing we do not like and we want you to change them. And, and if you won't, if you're unwilling or unable to make the changes we require, then we will make a change. We will change who our elected officials are. So, you know, the, the, the battle lines are being drawn, ladies and gentlemen. We need to, uh, you know, get ready, you know, strap it on, strap in, keep your hands and feet inside the ride at all times, and keep focused on the game that's being played. Because if we don't, uh, we are going to have a world of hurt that uh, we are going to be burdened with. So sorry to be so doom and gloom for the end of the episode. I'm just speaking it like it is. If you have any comments or questions, please feel free to email me at the show. It's firedupradio at yahoo.com. Uh, if you disagree with me, if you, you know, if you think that everything's going to be okay, um, send me an email. Let me know what you think. Uh, let's have a discussion on that. Uh, I don't propose to have, you know, the be-all, end-all answers to everything everywhere. Uh, and I'm always willing to hear uh, opinions from, you know, anyone else and weigh them with, you know, what I believe. So, firedupradio at yahoo.com. That's the email to communicate with us. Please take advantage. And, you know, as I've said, you know, make sure that we are keeping informed. That's going to do it. Thank you all uh, for listening, as you do each and every time. Uh, go to your uh, source for podcasts uh, and look us up, Fired Up Podcast, WJMS Media. This is Steve. As always, thank you, and I look forward to speaking with you again in seven days. Thank you.